Leading Corporate Transformation. Der Podcast der WHU Otto Beisheim School of Management. Powered by PwC. Zur Transformation von Unternehmen und ihrer Kultur. Von Entscheidern für Entscheider. Oder von Unternehmern für Unternehmer. Welcome to the WHU Podcast Leading Corporate Transformation, powered by PwC. This is our eighth edition, and I'm very happy to be with you, dear listeners, again. As always in this podcast, with me is Gori von Hirschhausen from PricewaterhouseCoopers PwC. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, good that we speak today again. Um, Special times, actually, we have to say. And, uh, of course, we will also refer to this. My name is Guri von Hirschhausen. I'm uh, the leading partner of our management consulting practice within PwC. And my daily job is to support companies in their business transformation. And transformation is a key for us today and brings us to the company with a very essential business model, I have to say, that we are currently been visiting and to our special guest, Eva Kienle. Eva, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Welcome, Gori. Welcome here in Einbeck. Eva, the first thing I would like to ask you is to give us a little introduction to yourself and to KWS Zad. Uh, happy to do so. Um, my name is, uh, as already mentioned, Eva Kienle. I'm a member of a five-person executive board here of KWS. The company is headquartered in Einbeck and we're uh, one of the largest or one of the large global seed processing, breeding and selling companies with a focus um, on some main what we call field crops, which is corn, sugar beet and cereals mainly, but also in vegetables since some years. Um, we have over 70 locations worldwide that we either uh breed or trial or produce seeds and sell it all over the world. So a very global footprint and uh, a very sustainable business model, as you said, in, in the true sense of the word, uh, because we we see seed breeding as as the core of, of, a, of a sustainable farming and agriculture in, in these days. So if I get it right, you are number four or number yep. five? Number yep. four in the global competition, right? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So it depends. Basically, we either you you look at the global context um, or at a more European context. Globally, clearly, the uh, the industry is dominated by Bayer and by Corteva, uh, which have the largest proportion in uh, the Americas, which mm -hmm. is entirely uh, genetically modified uh, market. So with with GMO seeds. And uh, both Corteva as well as Bayer have strong footprints in trade, trade development, which is an essential part of their turnover in, in those markets. So that's why they are there since, since decades and they have gained that market position on a global scale. If you move that and look into Europe, where it's clearly all non-GM markets, uh, this changes significantly also the size, so the gap between the two leading and the others, because there it's, it's on eye level just working on conventionally bred seed. Wow, that's impressive. Uh, if our seeds may seem to be uh, to the non-expert like a rather simple product, right? I have a garden at home and, uh, you know, in the spring I go and buy, you know, these little packages with a handful of little seeds in them. And it's quite amazing to, uh, to have such a business around this. Of, of that size. Uh, over, over the decades, it was possible to improve the quality of seeds uh, tremendously. Right? And, and uh, you know, based on that, yields, the crop yields have uh, uh, increased, uh, uh, you know, dramatically, allowing to feed more or less uh, every year the, the world population. Um, so with a look into the future, we talked a little bit about this, that the world population is going to still further increase. What do your scientists at KWS, at uh, KWS say? Is there still way uh, to improve here? Is there still room for improvement? Can this development go on? Mm. It has to go on, to be, to, to be open and, and frank on that, in that regard. Um, and you mentioned it already, the, the overall, the agricultural sector is, is facing an enormous challenge globally, is food security for a growing uh, world population reaching 10 billion people roughly by 2050. That's the UN estimate. 
So at the same time, increasing climate challenges, protection of biodiversity, and also the longer the fewer natural resources like water uh, and other nutrients. So you can only um, become and, 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 and sort of ensure this food security through brand, plant breeding and innovation in plant breeding. We have, uh, since over 160 years, been very successful in doing so. And there's also some studies out there that clearly indicate um, uh, on from, from HFFA so that on average and across all major arable crops worldwide cultivated, oh, sorry, in the EU, plant breeding contributes to about 67% of innovation-induced yield growth. So it's all about increasing yield and getting more to feed and, f and, and to eat out of, of the same acreage or of a reducing acreage. And without plant breeding, almost... 50 billion cubic meter of water would be additionally needed today on a global scale. So 50 billion cubic meter of water. So you breed for getting more out with less input. And this is basically the equation of plant breeding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I will, I will follow up with, uh, you know, uh, bringing in also other perspectives here because critics, I'm sure you're regularly confronted with these positions, Uh, argue against genetically modified uh, plants. You already indicated that there's a kind of segmentation in your market between Europe and, and uh, the Americas, for instance. And uh, also critics point out that with huge parts of the, uh, of, of the land cultivated but with only a handful of, of, uh, of, of uh, uh, plant types only, that diversity is in danger. So what would you answer these people who take this rather critical look at the industry? Mm -hmm. um, I think that to generalize here, the overall industry globally is not right. I think we, we have to go and look region by region or country by country and what's driving the population, the consumers and the countries or regions globally. And there's a huge distinction between developing countries Uh, already somehow developed countries and the, and the really rich and industrialized countries like we are in Europe or the North Americans are. So looking at to change in consumer habits about uh, being more sort of reflecting on, on what you eat and maybe reduce meat consumption and on a, go for a healthier nutrition, etc. That's a, that's a first world, let's say, uh, issue on, 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 on really having the choice and having the freedom to, to take this decision. Whereas in other countries like in Africa, in, in Southeast Asia, India, uh, South America, the people just want to reach that level where they can eat what they want. And the basic desire there is still, I want to be able to have regular meat. I want to able, be able to drink milk. I want to be able to have sugar and sweets and cakes. And, and this is why there is such a big distinction and why um, it's about, the again, the, the production output. So um, the, always offer and demand. And uh, the, what you're referring to, for example, is in, 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 um, in South America, there is that's what is always communicated, strong monoculture or very, mm -hmm. very little crop rotation. Um, and again, it's about the demand for soybeans being there that pushes the Brazilian farmers purely economic entrepreneurs to say, yeah, if there is enough demand, I'm going to offer this for the global market. Um, it's uh, very critically seen also uh, globally, and I think it's, it's, it's part of the sustainability initiative from the United Nations, and that's also addressed by, by the Brazilian government to make this a little sort of less uh, obvious. But again, um, I think the GMO discussion is, is a little outdated. It turns now more towards new breeding technologies, so the next kit, new kit on the blog is, is genetic genome editing. Um, so very became very famous with the Nobel Prize uh, some years back, I think three years back, uh, on the CRISPR-Cas mm -hmm. gene scissors. And this is something that is is working, and and we're doing it uh, also in plant breeding and and improving plants through genome editing. So the next to be discussion is about when does actively changing a DNA of a plant is seen as being modified and when is it also a sort of a sort of accelerated natural mutation that you're forcing up, up onto the plant. Mm -hmm. So if the innovation that you are referring to that is about to come or that's already uh, in, in progress and the innovation that took place 
for the CFO, it also translates, of course, into investments, right? So um, if I uh, remember it correctly, you spent approximately around about 250 million on R&D. So my question is, um, you expect for this new developments that it will be even increasing because it's around about 20% of your revenue, right? So do you expect it to even go further up? Is that enough? Uh, will you be able to, to manage uh, it on this level? Will it go down? Yeah. Um, now that's an interesting question. We are also uh, getting often from the capital market. Is, um, and we are, all, we are spending all R&D um, initiatives in, in expenses. So it's all going through the P&L. We are not capitalizing on, on any of that one. So it's it's and you're right. It has been a little bit above 250 last year, um, and and there's a strategic pillar and a strategic uh, aim to always look between 18 of or 20 percent of sales. So by the way, our sales increase, we will put more and more means into the R&D mm -hmm. budget mm -hmm. also. So yes, it will increase uh, in, yeah. in the way our sales increase. Um, the importance being is that um, developing a new variety of of whatever crop it, it takes up to seven, eight, nine years sometimes. So the, the return on invest is, is very difficult to calculate <laughs> because what you, the money you spend today, you can only see in eight or nine years. And breeding and selection is about you choose 10 plants, you throw eight away and you go on with two and you, you, you multiply those two and you enlarge the pool of those two. Again, you cross, you select, you throw eight away. So there is per se in, in, in doing breeding, there is, is a natural waste that without you you can't do and of course roughly 60 70% of the budget is um, applied breeding so breeding stations plants going out being in the field selecting this is something the larger you go and the more product you offer you have to just increase your plots your trial yeah, areas yeah, etc yeah. 20% is then breeding called breeding services like more and more bioinformatics but also marker labs etc and like roughly 10% is what you would really say is is fun money, but so really going into innovation, looking into new ways of doing the things, but you, you in, in getting more global and um, also to address, as I mentioned, those climate change, increasing different climate change topics, you you have to to enlarge on your test basis that where you do the breeding and the selection. Oh, that's very interesting to hear how how innovative these product of seeds is because as Martin said in the beginning we all would expect it's a simple product <laughs> but it's it's a very very innovative product so uh, uh, final question do you believe that this innovation rate this high innovation rate and this incredible and impressive innovations of the past you think this that this speed of, of innovation can be kept yeah. or yeah, yeah. That, and I think it will it will even accelerate because uh, again there is those new technology out being from a Informatics, so data, data analytical perspective that help a lot, but also, as I mentioned, through those new, for example, genome editing techniques, it's all aiming at speeding up the development process of a new variety and of a new, new sort of plant that is more resistant to diseases, to insects and whatsoever. So it's all, all aiming at shortening the development process and bringing products faster to market. Yeah, maybe, maybe just one further question that intrigues me. You're, we, we are now located, we are at your headquarters at uh, Einbeck, a small town in Lower Saxony. Uh, so to me, that's, you know, brings at least two interesting questions. <laughs> you know, being so much in the German, you know, rural countryside, how can you from here serve the world? That's maybe one question. And also, where do you do your R&D? Because you specialize in crops that normally are not grown here, like uh, soybeans. I suppose you would have to have a decentralized approach to that because of climate and, and soil, you know, mm. conditions. Yeah. Um, so the uh, we, we have two main R and D locations, and if I mean R and D locations, I'm I'm talking about uh, labs and about greenhouses and about really research. One, the main here is in Einbeck. So we have roughly 800 people working here in breeding and in research in the labs in the greenhouses, and there is another second uh, uh, research center that we have in St. Louis in the U.S., our Gateway Research Center, uh, that is a small uh, lab really working on innovation and on genome editing and improving technologies for, for being added to, to plant breeding. Uh, but you're right, so once it leaves the lab and it becomes to a testing trial and selection process, we go out into the countries you have to localize the plants so you can only produce, test, and 
try whether they are suitable for that climate zone or the market in that country. So by no means you can take a corn or a sugar beet that has been sort of initially bred here in the greenhouse or here in a trial, you cannot take this to Italy or to mm. uh, to, to the US to, to be to be marketed and grow there. So it's all with regards then to the to the stations of our breeders, it's all very, very decentralized, basically all over the place where we are also going into the markets. Very interesting. So uh, maybe coming back to the the origin or the the uh, history of the company, if I uh, understand it right, KWS stands for Klein Wanslebner Saatgut, right? So and it's not Einbeck Saatgut. Mm. Can you explain this? Why, yeah. What is Klein Wanslebner? Yeah, Klein Wanslebner is the uh, the DNA. So that's the, the the nucleus of the company, and and Klein Wanslebner is a, is a small town close to Magdeburg. So a little bit south southwest of Berlin, that's where initially the founder families or the families had a sugar factory mm -hmm. uh, in Klein Wanzleben, mm -hmm. and that's why it was called Klein Wanzlebner Saat Zucht um, GmbH at that point in time. And uh, so they were uh, starting looking on how can I improve my input uh, into my sugar factory to increase the output. So how can I get more sugar out of this beet? And they started to work on sugar beets on trying to improve the sugar content. And 1856, that's the foundation year of the company. So that's exactly when Gregor Mendel uh, did his very first ah, outcome on how could that yeah. work. So actually the family started at the same time experimenting in something they just didn't know, but, but try and error. And they found out that by uh, selection of varieties with a higher yield, you can constantly improve. And that's why the, the core crop that the company is, is based on is sugar beet. And since then we grew. And then um, after the Second World War, um, with the, with the Yalta after the Yalta conference and, and the new repartition of, of Germany, um, the, uh, the English, uh, at, at that time, the English um, uh, an army was in Klein-Wansleben, based in Klein-Wansleben, and they realized that this part would become Russian. Mm -hmm. And they had also, uh, they had learned how, how intensively uh, you, can, you can use the sugar beet for producing sugars, and they just wanted to ensure that this knowledge doesn't fall uh, to the Russians uh, at that time and wanted to safeguard it for, for themselves. So they put oh. machines, uh. breeders... And especially the germplasm, so the elite lines, they put all on, on some lorries, six, seven lorries, and they went west. And this was the far most western land plot that belonged to the family. And that's why we ended up in Einbeck. <laughs> Very interesting. Huh? Very interesting I didn't indeed, know. Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. Um, I would like to ask one more question about, because it's so interesting, uh, about research and combined about the, the company history. Looking at the timeline, I saw that you have uh, developed a lot of your business uh, in joint ventures with international partners. Is that necessary because the conditions that you find in different parts of the world are so different that you need to engage with, I don't know, Brazilian partners or Asian partners? And, uh, and and how do you manage the joint ventures to uh, to get you know uh, uh, success out of these uh, mm -hmm. joint efforts? Mm -hmm. um, that that's that's also a, a, a one of the sort of like the the, the, the basic values of, of KWS that if if we start being interested in someone or potentially being a good partner to go on further or to work together, we aim for partnerships first. So we are not going for a typical, you would say, uh, M&A strategy, you evaluate a target, you offer a big check and just integrate the new business and, and you make it become part of yours. So all the successful, um, later on now, 100% owned subsidiaries, we have started off with partnerships, uh, be it 50-50, be it uh, 81. If you look at, at Lojo, so the Lojo Petkus uh, Rye Cereals Company, like in Brazil, where we initially had a 51 uh, stake, the, the old owner, founder, still a 49% stake. And it's a little bit like in Germany, you would say, eher of Probe. So you first move <laughs> together in the same apartment, you look out how it works, and, and then you ask for marriage rather than saying, well, let's go and get married. And after maybe a year or two, you find out saying maybe not the, not the ideal of deal fit. So, so what's the success rate? How many, how many uh, joint ventures, uh, you know, enter into a, a marriage and how many mm -hmm. are dissolved? Before yeah, we, the, the ones that are not made on purpose for remaining as they are, and I'm come to that in a minute, is, is all ended up on our ends. So we haven't ever dissolved a partnership that, that we went into initially. 
Uh, we have China, which is very, very special. So China, you are not allowed to have more than 49% uh, in, in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a food supply company as a foreign company. So there is no way mm -hmm. we would ever own 100% of, of, of a Chinese company. And our uh, U.S. corn partnership with our French colleagues from Limagra is a 50-50 on purpose because there clearly we have both had our learnings that as a standalone company, um, you are not big enough and you are not sort of powerful enough also by, by the knowledge and the resources to, to gain ground in the U.S. market. And that's sort of a, a really Zweckgemeinschaft to move the American market forward. So that's why we will remain there also uh, in a 50-50 joint venture. Looking again at your competitor landscape, it looks like there are some real big players, right? So when it comes to merger and acquisition, it's also very innovation and R&D heavy uh, uh, business that you're in. Uh, how good are you doing here? I would say we're doing really good because you see it as the, the number of, of new varieties and, and new registrations that we get year after year, which is an increasing number. So the real sort of the, the to judge on the output of, of the R&D organization, you can look at the, at the new varieties that are registered uh, globally on a global scale. So we are getting better there year after year. And that would be a first sign also if you fade out in your innovation funnel and your product pipeline, if you see that the product development is slowing down, that's a really first sign to pay attention for. So we're not doing really bad there. So and that's what's important for us. We could always look at the others and saying it's, it's a multiple of money that they invest into. So they are investing a lot into trade development, as I mentioned initially, and they are then uh, returning or, or get getting the return on, on licensing out those trades. So that's also a good chance for us, getting more and more familiar than, than compared to priors that we can license in those trades. So we do not necessarily have to develop them on our own. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so there is more and more um, cooperation and licensing models also in the industry than some 10 years back. Oh, interesting. If I read this right, there was one uh, uh, acquisition which took place in 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, Pop Friend Seeds? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I that that <laughs> was our uh, one of our steps into the into the vegetable market. So mm -hmm. we have um, we have sort of uh, looked into our strategic plan for for the next 10, 15 years, and uh, again. Uh, the, the, the nutrition habits and, and, and eating habits, especially in Europe, but also globally, clearly indicate that vegetables is a extremely fast-growing market. It's extremely heterogeneous mm -hmm. by crops, also within a crop, by country, by species. So I don't know how many different tomato or pepper varieties there are out globally. And we have said we want to be in that vegetables market. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, aligned our strategy on, on a twofold uh, um, way. One is we go through what we call greenfield approach. So we literally go out, we buy land plots, we build greenhouses, we recruit beaters, uh, we, we, we license in germplasm from others and we start breeding on our own. So this mm -hmm. is the more than 10, 15 year path before you get ever a variety out that you can sell. So this is just cost. And the other thing that we say, we sort of empower this with add-on acquisitions. Um, and Popfrin was one of those occasions um, that we could hop off, or hop on, so to say, um, and have a quick start, jump start into the, uh, into the spinach market because they are the world market leader in, in spinach seeds. So that it really sounds so interesting to learn how long it takes till you develop uh, uh, these innovations and till they really hit the market and make the revenues and get the profits back. So I think it's a good time, I would say, to look at your ownership structure. And uh, I think Martin has some questions on this. That's right. Uh, the ownership structure is interesting because you're a kind of a hybrid. You're on the one hand stock listed. And on the other hand, uh, families play a very important role in the ownership. Uh, among them, uh, a family that has been, you know, uh, in the company and, and with the company, in fact, has founded the company more than, as you said, 160 years ago. Uh, can you say a little bit about this, how this plays to each other, you know, a stock-listed family firm? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's interesting, but it's for me, it's personally as a CFO, it's it's a very um, win-win situation, so to say. Um, the business model requires a, a really long breath and an understanding exactly that the investment of today is hopefully at best returning in eight, nine, ten years. So it's a bet into the future, which is very difficult to explain to very 
um, yeah, return-oriented investors that look for short-term dividend uh, share price increase, etc., and have to also deliver certain returns to their shareholders or if their funds or whatever. So making a, an understanding that it's it's really the long-term view that we aim at is is something that a normal normal investor, so to say, would have a hard time to understand. So why would he invest if he's not returning within two to three years and he needs the money to invest into something else? Um, that that's where the family helps, because we're not sort of we are not driven by the capital market requirements and capital market needs. We we haven't to deal at all with activist investors. Um, we can very uh, very sort of uh, yeah slowly not slowly but sort of focused keep and focus. with a clear strategic vision keep our course on what we have said is the right step next step to take rather than being pushed right and left and maybe do a return by someone who has a good idea or something that's showing up on the horizon that we should test case etc so that's where the family and really the the founding families of course have a deep understanding on how it works so the 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 main profession of of the families members the the the, the former uh, CEOs is they are they are breeders so they have they have studies in in, in ag, agriculture and in, in, in agro business on breeding so you have to understand that it takes a little longer than than just writing a new song or creating new Apple iPhone. Mm. But it's so interesting, right, uh, to hear, Eva, what you were saying, because uh, we had Julian Deutz the other day, and he was referring that they, were, they did this delisting of Springer. And uh, one of the reasons was because they were so innovative in, in their uh, digitization of the business model uh, that they, they, he was saying very funny, he said, uh, maybe we were not good in telling the story or the capital market didn't get our story because we were so much ahead. We were talking about the digital future of publishing that uh, we decided it, it's better to have the opportunity to keep focus. And it sounds like uh, in your case, it's the same. You need so much innovation and it takes takes quite some time from the innovation till you hit the market until you get the profits that that might be this this kind of private ownership very helpful to 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 keep on track so mm -hmm. i think it depends on on your investment um on your investment target so if you yeah. invest for to achieve high returns then certainly potentially business models like springer or ours is, is not the ideal one if yeah. you look for a risk sharing or a, a broader portfolio and a, and a low risk investment in in your portfolio then you're absolutely rightly placed there and we have interesting times ahead because with the whole esg sustainability discussion uh kws will be definitely at the forefront to be able to serve those expectations mm -hmm. of the longer the more investors saying okay yeah. how good and what are you doing to fulfill the sustainability targets interesting mm -hmm. So, so coming back to the family structure, the the Büchting family that plays a central role in the company. I come back to that also in, in just a moment. The Büchting family, if I understand it correctly, traces its origin back to the original founders. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the Oetker family, uh, another right, uh, very well known uh, family, yeah. family in uh, in the business uh, cycles of uh, business circles of, of Germany, is also invested in uh, KWS. Can you say how that has come about? Mm -hmm. Um, so the, the the sort of the founders uh, were were very close sort of families, which is the Rabetke and the Gieseke family. So the Klein Wansleben Ozatsuf was also <laughs> formerly Rabetke and Gieseke, and uh, the Büchting family is one one of those uh, those uh, uh, yeah, generations of of one of those founders. Um, and the other branch decided to sell their entire share into KWS. Uh, I think it was around the 80s, mid 80s. Um, and when they were um, looking out for potential uh, interested investors to take over their whole uh, share package, so to say, they wanted to have a have a have a close deal. Um, of course, the the other part of the family was was getting very nervous because they said we we do not want to have sort of whomever into the company for such a big stake that was tw roughly twenty five percent then, and so they uh, they searched actively for someone with the same mindset with a, also a, an entrepreneurial perspective with someone uh, that is a little closer to our business maybe than to any other business or not not a car manufacturer etc. and that's how uh, they they ran. Coincidentally, through through a through a common friend in in the in, in our into Arend Oetker, mm -hmm. and he he found it so interesting in at that time that he said, okay, that's a super cool investment. I'm going to take those 25 percent, and that's how he 
how he became one of the major shareholders together with the Büchting family. All right. So the Büchting family has been central in, in, in effectively running the company for, for many decades. Uh, uh, the uh, Karl Ernst Büchting was CEO. I've read that for 23 years. And uh, then Andreas Büchting, uh, again, for a very long period from 78 to 20, uh, 2007. In the meantime, you have another non-family CEO, but I've read, that's public knowledge, uh, that uh, at the end of the year, again, a member of the uh, Büchting family will take over the helm of the company as uh, CEO, uh, Felix Büchting. And uh, um, Hagen Dünbostel, who is the CEO now, will eventually, after cooling off, switch to the chair position of, of the Aufsicht side of the supervisory board. So is that a good thing, this you know, uh, continuity within one family, and and how do your your uh, you know non-family shareholders see this? Mm. Um, yeah, that, that, that that's a very 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 interesting question. Um, I think it it was maybe it was was not on purpose, but naturally uh, necessary that 2007 there, there was the first time ever that there was not a family member ready mm -hmm. to step into the executive board role when when Andreas Büchting retired. And that is the first time that they they took an external um, expert to to run the board, which was Philip von den Busch at that time. Um, and it it worked out well. Um, so I think Philip, yeah, and that's an experience that also was more, having this extraordinary situation of not being able to have someone of the family on the board. And it's I think it's less about the family, but it's about the knowledge on breeding and the knowledge on um, agriculture and, and, and agribusiness. And all Büchting members who served on the board are, are deeply rooted and entrepreneurs in, in farming and in, in also understanding what it's about. So if that's sort of like product development. If you're not an expert in product development, um, it, it's getting very tough. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, or this is what the capital market recognizes and saying, looking from outside in or bringing people from outside in at that you would have you would need that one expert on the board that is able to judge on where do we have to bring the company with regards to product development to countries to crops so which is the way to to drive the 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 offer forward and if you're not an expert in breeding or in, in plant development you cannot do it you can simply not do it so mm -hmm. that that's something that i think is is the uh, is the advantage of being a family member that that is from the roots an expert in that in that area. I mean, with this business model and the work that you do here at KWS, um, of course, looking at the current situation with the Putin regime war on Ukraine, a question that comes to our mind before we switch to the more, let's say, uh, internal view from the CFO office to to KWS. Let's let's finish up um, the view on the company with with the question, how does this Ukraine uh, war in, uh, impacts your business? Because from all, everybody knows uh, that uh, it's called the bread basket of, of Europe, right? Mm. So that must have a big impact. It or has, it does have. Uh, unfortunately, we had to issue a, a profit warning last Friday. So we went out publicly because we, we did our math. Um, now that the conflict unfolded into where it stands today, mm -hmm. Uh, March is the beginning of the sowing season, so we, we had to take assumptions on how will the agriculture work these days in Belarus, in Ukraine, in Russia. Russia and Ukraine are two of our main markets, uh, both in, in cereals, and unfortunately the cereal season is over because cereals is a winter crop. Mm -hmm. But now it's, it's sowing time for sugar beets and for corn, and of course we have taken expectations about about a significant reduction, if not complete cancellation of this year agricultural season, at least in Ukraine. And that's why, why of course, uh, we took that in, into account regarding our profit expectation for this year. But the most concerned, more than with, with our financial results, we are with our employees. Um, we, we have operations in both countries. Uh, we have uh, people in Ukraine spread all over the place, also our sales guys. And, and we're really very worried and, and we, have, uh, we have set up a crisis committee immediately and we have done 
uh, everything we could do from here to to really help them and and make them sort of assemble and ha and having a shelter in our production facility in the southwestern area, which is not yet so much under conflict. Mm -hmm. And of course, we are helping anyone out who can still go out and wants to go out. And and we are bringing uh, basically family members, w wives, kids, parents. We're bringing over to mm -hmm. to other KWS locations and and help them stay here. Hear. Good to hear. So, Eva, um, you know, I'm I'm sure a lot of our listeners will also have worries and and. Uh, you know, fears about possible wider consequences of this conflict. Uh, also, not just, you know, the uh, immediate uh, traumatic situation in Ukraine, but also for for the supply of food for, for you know, world population. Uh, as Gori said, uh, Ukraine and also Russia are important uh, countries for, for food production, for crop production. What do your experts say? What 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 do you, as an expert, know about what 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 are possible consequences for for the markets in wheat and corn and and other mainstays of of uh, human uh, you know uh, mm. um, products? Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's a very serious topic here. Uh, the 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 Black Earth region is the Konkama Europa, so mm -hmm. that's that's basically where the the, the largest uh, cereals production, not only for Europe but also for for Africa, um, is is happening. Uh, almost forty percent of of the needs for Europe and Africa in wheat is is grown there in Ukraine mainly. So it's it's all apparently or hope, hope yeah we don't know. So assuming it's it's not being able to produce this year. You can see it already in the commodity prices. So the wheat price has been around 170, 180 last year. It's now over 400. Uh, so there's an explosion, of course, of commodity prices, which not is only not only relevant for those people who need uh, the the commodity, but also, of course, for input prices, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and also, of course, for the um, for the arable land in other areas in our region, because now people are looking for. Where else can we grow? And of course, everyone is addressing now farmers in Europe, Western Europe, Southern Europe on do you have plots available where we can try to compensate for this this fallout in, in cereals um, planting and harvest? And, and this is this is serious. Same will come for corn now, uh, also a large, large part and sunflowers. Uh, so that is that will have an impact and definitely on on food supply in Africa. And last time we had a shortage um, in food supply everyone will remember was the Arab Spring. So um, there's a lot of scenarios that that don't allow for, for big joy. Mm -hmm. So that really sounds like, um, I, I think we all think it's a very sad time to mm. see. Absolutely. To see this, this wrong and unethical things happening and to see not just the innocent people die and suffer, but also, as you as you're pointing out, what will be the impact on the on 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 the whole world? And uh, when it comes to food supply, you really know that we talk about the fundamentals, right? So, well, this is uh, this is really uh, I have to say, and I have to admit, it's very hard to handle and to take. And um, you know, we always need to be careful to not sound cynical when we we talk business in these times. But um, you know. Uh, I, I just, uh, for myself, I'm a strong believer that that's the best way how we do, how we can deal with that at this moment, while all our thoughts, I think, are with the Ukraine Absolutely. people. So, but uh, having this said, uh, maybe we, we can switch to your role as a CFO of KWS. So maybe the broad question to start it off, uh, what is the biggest challenge for you being the CFO in such an innovative, but also long-lasting investment cycle business You, you, how, how do you manage performance? <laughs> uh, yeah, I would I would say for 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 me as a CFO, but also as a person, I would say one of the big challenges uh, is is a rather as you said, um, it's it's a it's a steady, maybe slowish, but but quite rather complacent organization. So mm -hmm. it's it's not full of energy driving, fast changing, like for example, the PE environment is, is very pushy, looking for quarterly results. So there's a lot of drive and energy. So um, alerting an entire organization, prepare for change and make it fun and, and interesting to, to sort of look every day at new things and, and embrace change that is somehow difficult or, or it takes a lot of effort, especially if you always have had extremely good times or rather mm -hmm. been ever in a, in a situation of, of, of have to tighten the belt or whatever. So 
Um, that's something where where KWS is like sort of a little sort of paradise. And if you come in and shout about, well, let's become more digital, let's move things forward, uh, let's, let's it's like okay, why? Yeah, it's a so that's I think the main challenge on on creating lust for for really going out and doing things different and moving forward. If if you're feeling absolutely fine and comfortable in where you are right now. So that's interesting because maybe we can talk about a project. I think that that sets the frame for all of this. If I uh, uh, remember it correctly, there was this project One A that mm -hmm. you started, which had the idea to keep the corporate and R and D roof flat, as you said once to me, and and to have the let's say core processes in the business units, but also having the support processes bundled and professionalized in, in business services. Can you talk a little bit about this project and mm. how this, this I think, very, let's say, business-driven idea fits into this very innovative-driven mm. business model of KWC, mm. KWS, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, so we, we operated since 2010 with regional shared service centers. We, we, we called them shared service centers, but, but we were sort of bundling them regionally, but not really process um, and, and sort of system-wise. Um, and we realized that with the with the very different and heterogeneous growth patterns and needs in the different countries and regions, we would we would completely sort of not be able to manage the support in an adequate, cost efficient way going forward. Not not even talking about uh, systems adaptions uh, on on the ERP landscapes or whatsoever. So we have said this will be an end end to end uh, mm -hmm. sort of change and, and and movement every time, which is not possible. And we decided really to streamline streamline focus. And concentrate the support functions because that that is basically that that is a that is a standardizable process and it's not not so, too much distinct from paying an invoice in Russia to paying an invoice in Germany, and that's the that's the journey we embarked on in in 2016-17 with design phase. Then 2018 we kicked really the transformation off and we have moved now in the last three years, uh, starting Western Europe sort of we. We went east and we took country by country by country into the new global shared service center in Berlin, but also uh, the other functions are centralized either in Einbeck or in Berlin. And we serve, let's say, the global, the KWS world from here with, with anything than some business partner roles in the countries. And of course, this works uh, only with a large, huge digital tool set uh, that, that is basically the heart of uh, the machine room of, of the transaction center. Um, and that's also now where in, in reality you find out on, on how much you can still um, uh, sort of ignore a digitalized <laughs> process locally if you continue just sending physically the invoice around your factory mm -hmm. in, I don't know, in somewhere in the world. And the people at the GTC just are waiting there and saying, why isn't the process getting any faster? So, so that's what I mean by saying if you continue uh, wearing your old shoes, although you have a very nice, beautiful a uh, pair of shoes net standing next to you, it, it doesn't really help. So that's that's where we are today. The challenges of the reality. Mm -hmm. Eva, can you say a little bit more about the uh, you know advanced digital technologies that you're using? What role uh, does data analytics play? How much uh, use do you make of, so I, I would assume, the large data pool that you accumulate over time of your business um, with uh, you, you said how long your your cycles for for business development are, for instance, and so on. So data, I would assume, plays a big role. How mm. do you manage this, these processes? How do you uh, employ possibly advanced analytics mm. in these processes? I would say the largest the largest area where we use uh, since since quite some time already, but big data is in bioinformatics. So in in quantitative uh, analytics, in in breeding, in selecting, um, in in finding patterns, mm -hmm. in in breeding results, in plant behavior, in weather patterns. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, to really overlay all those those data that you have accumulated over years. Um, now it's also added by images, so satellite images, drone images, et cetera. And that's where you you get through those data points more and more insights into a specific point in time on a specific plot with a specific plant or specific varieties on what is going on there. So that's that's the main area we used. We we have uh, we have started digging into customer information. So by, by um, adding more and more digital front ends uh, to communicate and interact with our customers, mostly farmers, but also dealers, and trying to understand 
what their needs are and what their behavior is with regards to specific markets and specific crops and, and also needs with regards to agro-service once, once it's planted. So what is the service needed during, during the year? And of course, then on the on the admin or support side, uh, it's the it's the analytics of transactions and saying where have we sort of like process outliers, where do we spend too much time for for paying invoices? Where do we lose on discount possibilities because of mm -hmm. late paying? How, mm -hmm. how where do we lose applications or applicants because the process takes too long? So that's of course where you can the sort of the qualitative judging on on KPIs use on from analytics. Oh, I, I think we need another podcast for this <laughs> <laughs> because that sounds so yeah, interesting. There's, there's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot there to explore. But uh, maybe uh, um, coming to you, uh, to you as a person, Eva, uh, it, it was uh, very interesting to learn that you have a very diverse background. So my question is, uh, how important was it for you that you have made all this experience working global corporates, working for private equity-backed companies and, and going through different industries to be the CFO of such an interesting company like KWS. So yeah, what, what would you advise mm -hmm. young people to, to, to do to become or to get the chance to become a CFO of such a company? I think most importantly, you have to be true to yourself, to what you want um, and you have to move and change. So d don't don't wait and let the life do something with you, but take it, into, let's say, take it into your own hands, what you like to do and would, would like you to, and step up if you see interesting projects, interesting jobs, interesting um, opportunities out there. I think that that's the most important. And it has to make fun. Fun is maybe said too easily, but you have to get up in the morning and be full of energy to do what you do this day. So if you do your job for money, that's not the right thing to do. Yeah. And you will be rather less successful and, and suffer a lot from, from, uh, from, from be needing to do something that you actually would maybe not so much like to do. I think that's the most important piece. The learning I had is um, I love changes. So I love uh, I love seeing new things, exploring new things, exploring new countries, new cultures, new new co-workers, and sort of the the red thread in that is a little bit the the transformation part. And and I always hopped on on opportunities where where there were transformation topics ahead or or things to be changed. And and that's what I like. So I'm not the the everyday same job nine to five that's not my my piece and and that's basically why i why i came along or across a lot of of different challenges in different industries okay so gore you remarked on the on the breadth of your experiences you you worked in a public utility you worked for walmart germany but you also worked for two pe firms and it strikes me that you know the business you're in now with 160 plus year history strong family involvement is kind of a antipode maybe even to PE. So uh, uh, what is it that you've taken with you from the PE world, from the companies that uh, you um, worked for that were run by PE firms that you can apply now at, mm. at uh, KVS? Mm. Um, I have to say as a, as a CFO, especially if it, it comes to, to absolutely deep dive finance topics, uh, financing, tax, et cetera, et cetera, you you're quite often very alone with with whom to talk to and whom to challenge and discuss your ideas so so the 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 the, the nice thing with pe investors is you always have dozens of people around you where you can really sort of brainstorm get your ideas done etc it's all experts in finance they all know how to do a good deal, how to develop a company, how where well the strategy has to be put and placed. They're ruthless on, on the project plans, the milestones and metering the achievements and what is needed to get there. So it's a very tough, let's say, um, exercise you're pushed through. Uh, and I think that's one learning I, I really took, uh, took with me in saying, how can you achieve things that for maybe a, a normal complacent person would seem very difficult, if not impossible. So not shying away from saying, if we do this and this and this, we can make it. So that that's really a PE attitude I would mm -hmm. I would clearly mm -hmm. see, sort of mm -hmm. really judging everything with open eyes and it's not with, oh, no one has done it so far and maybe it's d d dangerous to go into that country. It's it's really all in, I would say. So that's that's an attitude and a, and a way of working that that is is very very helpful. On the other side, that's always two sided metal. 
that's sort of maybe that that short-sighted, very short-sighted and and very pushy thinking that that is at the forefront of of driving a lot of decisions in in private equity and and that is something where where I more than once would have taken a wrong decision for the better of the company or the employees long term, but where I realized that that's far beyond the investor horizon mm -hmm. and sort of they didn't care and saying, well, that's then up to the next owner, et cetera. And I say, well, to me, it's a little sort of too egoistic and in that sense. And that's something where I was, was potentially deliberately looking for something that is not not looking for the own investment horizon only, but also for the next mm -hmm. and the after one and the whatever. And that's exactly what KWS is bringing along is you, you look into generations to come and saying, what I have here, I want to give into the next five, six, seven generations. I just don't want it for me and cash in on my heritage, but I want to keep this up for the, for the succeeding uh, generations. So if we can expect you to stay in the role for longer, <laughs> from what we heard. Until <laughs> retirement, but that is okay. not forever. <laughs> So, uh, Eva, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for this great talk. It was really, really interesting. We have a final question that Martin always likes to raise, and uh, I would like to hand over to Martin for our final question for today. Yes, it has become a tradition in this podcast to ask our um, our guest and uh, uh, whether you have a, a recommendation for our listeners uh, for a book or maybe another podcast or some other medium, uh, whether you have uh, something to recommend. Yeah. Um, I think if, if, if you go the classical route uh, I want to impress someone but I'm sure everyone has read of course you go for uh, Little Prince of Antoine de Saint-Exupéry I think just in, in just during this tragic um, sort of happenings of the last weeks I came across a book again I, I, I liked very much because it took the the hardcore part of, of North Korea uh, very to the light side and it's, uh, it's a book called Kim and Struppi from Christian Eisert, that's a young guy, uh, actually born in the 70s, uh, educated in the in the DDR, uh, GDR, and he had a, a book in school where there was a huge colored tobogan in one of the leisure parks in North Korea. And he always wanted to go and see this large colored tobogan. And he managed to get a trip uh, done to North Korea. Um, and he's writing this book about his experience on this trip three or four weeks into North Korea. And of course, he had always two guards, observers um, from from the government with him. And he called them Kim and Struppi. And that's very funny how, <laughs> how he's writing, but also about the impressions of this country, about the population, yeah. about how he experienced this, this country. So that's maybe something that is getting a little bit of light side on, mm -hmm. a, on a, one of the countries that we would judge being not, not into our worlds. Very interesting. Eva, many thanks. Thank many you very thanks much, indeed Martin. for having Gori and you. me here. Yeah, it was fun. Back thanks, Eva. And yeah. for this very, very interesting talk. Thank you. Thank you thank very you much so for much. having me. Uh, we thanks, also Eva. thank you, dear listeners, for uh, 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 spending time with us. And tuning in. Yes, yes, for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> and we look forward to meeting you all again very, very soon. Yeah, thank there's more to come and it keeps as interesting as this time. So thank you very much to everyone. Das war... Leading Corporate Transformation. Ein Podcast der WHU Otto Beisheim School of Management. Powered by PwC. Redaktion PwC, Britta Bormuth und Marvin Rothmann. Produziert in den ChemWeb Digital Studios. <lacht>